morning, everyone. It's hard to believe that on Tuesday we're expected to get snow in the mountains. I don't know how that's going to happen, but I could use some cool weather. I would enjoy it. We are starting a new series starting this week on cultural wars, showing the difference between the Christian mindset and the non-Christian mindset, and specifically answering the question, how do we as believers and as a church respond to the world? And the world has many ways in which it tries to persuade you to follow them. And Christ has said we're to follow him, to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and give everything over to him. All of our life, education, emotions, our mental health, our physical health, everything is supposed to be dependent upon him, not looking to the world for hope and comfort, but looking to him for hope and comfort. That is very easy to say. It's very difficult to do. So it's my hope that through the next several weeks as we look at this topic of how do we respond to the world around us, that we become more confident that Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and God leads us and guides us in all things that we need for our spiritual well-being as well as how to live in the world around us. We do have answers on how to live. We do have answers on how to respond. We do have answers on how to lead others in difficult times and in times of plenty. And so as we go through these, um, these next several messages, uh, it is important for us to have some very good foundation. Foundation is extremely important. So through the month of September, the next four weeks, they are vitally important foundational messages on how to apply what we're learning. And so while the next couple messages may seem uh, rehashing basic things, I never apologize for rehashing basic things because they are basic things to the Christian life because they're vital and important. And the more we know it, the more we're confident about it, the more we hear it, the more we think about it, the better we become at understanding and mastering the basic things. And so for this week and next week, we're going to really be looking at the radical difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, and then build practical applications, how we interact with the world around us. Uh, th there's a couple different ways we could interact with the world around us. We could go to war with it. We've done that before as a church. Uh, we could completely ignore it. And we've done that as a church. But I don't think those two extremes is where God is calling the believer to interact with the world, to go to war against it, like during the Crusades, or to simply ignore it like they did during the 18-1900s, the early 18-1900s, just ignore culture altogether. We have a responsibility to engage in the culture around us, but not be owned by the culture around us. So the very first step that we have to be on the same page is understanding what it means to be a Christian. If we're talking about the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, then we better be really convinced in our heart and our minds that we understand what we are fighting for, who we are fighting with, and what our identity is. Our identity is extremely important in this cultural war for our hearts and our minds, and that of our kids, our families, and our entire culture and society. 
So it is important to understand what the word Christian means. It means, very simply, belonging to Christ. Belonging to Christ. That is, and, and I've heard it described like this, and I've used this description several times, little Christ. We are little Christ. Not that we are divine, not that we are gods, but that all of his characteristics and attributes that he put on display that we're to follow, we're to imitate that. We're to be like Christ. And not only to be like him, to act like him, to behave like him, we also realize that when it comes to who has ultimate control over our hearts and minds, it's not ourselves. It's Christ. Christ is our Lord. Christ is our Savior. And that has implications on how we respond to the world around us. If we are Christ, then we should go to him and find out how do we then live in this world. As nice as it would be, weird at the same time, if we became Christians at that moment, were automatically removed from earth and went to heaven, one, there'd be, churches would be pretty empty. For one, evangelism would happen. And how would you have a family take care of your responsibilities if all of a sudden you became a Christian and you were just gone? God has designed in his wisdom that we endure and maintain our witness in a fallen world that is often at times contrary to Scripture. How do we respond in those ways? The word Christian is used three times in Scripture. Three times. Only three times. The word Christ occurs hundreds of times, but the word Christian refer, happens three times. And in every occurrence of the word Christian, it refers to an individual or a group of individuals. It is a noun, and it is a personal noun. It never refers to an inanimate object. It never refers to an idea. It never refers to a movement. This is very different than the way we use the word from the mid-1900s. For 2,000 years, when writers spoke about Christian, everyone understood it meant a person, an individual. Today, over the last 50, 60 years, we kind of have, I don't want to say misuse the word, but we sort of have changed the definition of it, even within the context of a church. And I'll give you an example. Have you ever heard of a Christian business? Have you ever heard of Christian music? Have you ever heard of Christian books? Yeah, yeah. For the first 1,900 years of the church, no Christian ever would have heard those terms referred that way. Christian always meant a person, not an inanimate object, a business. Can a business be saved? I'm talking spiritually here. Can a business be saved? No. Businesses are neither Christian nor non-Christian. Christians can work at a business, and non-Christians can work at a business. But there is no such thing in all of Scripture where businesses are declared Christian or not Christian. Same thing goes for, and I mentioned it, music. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, Tim, but there's Christian radio stations. And I'm like, oh, let's remember 
Scripturally, the word Christian refers to a person, a person who has been saved by faith, a person that Jesus came and died for, a person that Jesus was on the cross for. Christian is a person. And so you might say, well, Tim, how then do we understand Christian books, Christian music, Christian radio stations, uh, Christian, um, well, whatever. How do we understand that? I am super glad you asked that question because next week at 10.30, we will address the question of if we're not supposed to call it a Christian business or a Christian way of dressing or a Christian hairstyle, how do we answer that question? And it's a beautiful, simple, biblical way of understanding and hopefully change our terminology from calling things Christian to referring it to biblically people as Christians. And we'll, we'll address that, but we have to wait till next week. I know I'm whetting your appetite, kind of doing that on purpose. But we're going to look at three passages this morning in the book, well, two passages in Acts, one in Peter that Christian, and we're going to see how Paul uses that word as Peter uses that word. And the first happens in Acts 11, I'm sorry, Luke says it in Acts. Luke wrote Acts, not Paul. Uh, but in Acts chapter 11, uh, Luke writes, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is a good anywhere from 20 to 40 years after the events of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So it's been quite a while. Before that time, Christians, the individuals that followed Jesus Christ, that belonged to Christ, were just simply considered uh, a Jewish kind of fringe group just a fringe group of Jews that just sort of were really mistaken. Uh, they were kind of secretive. Uh, there were rumors going around that they were cannibals. Yeah, and believe it or not, you're going to take part in that today because we're having something called the Lord's Supper Communion where they talked about eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Hence the charge of cannibalism. And as rotten as Rome was, as evil as it was, as idolatrous as it was, cannibalism was off the table. You can't eat people. And so Christians kind of meeting together, hidden away secretively, because they didn't want to be persecuted and murdered, and martyred, had this celebration where they would pretend to eat people. 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, this is after Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem and he's being put on trial, being sent to Rome. He appears before several different governors and he appears before Agrippa and Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul was having a dialogue with Agrippa trying to show him the faith of the Jewish uh, believers is indeed fulfilled in Christ. And so it's a very short moment that he's before Agrippa, but Agrippa understands exactly what Paul's trying to do. Paul's trying to witness to him to convert him. And Agrippa says, hey, no, 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 hold on. This is a lifelong decision and challenge that you're making to me. I can't make the decision with just this one moment of you coming and talking to me. This is a lifelong decision I have to make. It's going to take time to figure this out. Don't think you can persuade me right here and now. You're not going to do it. So Agrippa had a hardness towards Christianity, but for the people's sake, because he didn't want to riot, he brought Paul up on charges and started the whole process. 
uh, to, to take him to Rome. But he refers to the word Christian as an individual. You're going to try and make me a Christian through this argument, Paul's side, through witnessing. And then later on, the only other time, the third time that the word Christian is used in Scripture is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. It says, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Peter is writing to, uh, to believers that he calls scattered. Just believers who have been scattered. Scattered away from Jerusalem because of persecution, and now they are just all over the Roman Empire. And so he writes a letter to these general people who are just scattered, who feel like they have no home, who are feeling the persecution, who are feeling isolated, who are feeling alone, who feel like they have no support, who feel desperate for encouragement. And, Paul's, and Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Peter doesn't say that suffering is good or bad. He doesn't say try to get out of suffering. But he says when you suffer, realize that it's not a shame to suffer. And what Paul is, what I keep saying Paul, Peter is saying, because we've been looking at First and Second Thessalonians for several months, and Paul is just in my mind, so i got to switch. Peter, Peter says that um, as you go through this suffering, and he's not talking about, I think, a general type of suffering, like, oh, man, your car broke down, bummer, you suffer today. He's not talking about that kind of suffering. He's talking about suffering as a Christian, meaning when you're asked to bow before the emperor, you say no. Whoa, now all gloves are off, and everyone looks at you like, you're the oddity from outer space because you're not conforming to culture. He says, when you suffer for that, it's okay. And it's better than okay. He says, praise God that you bear that name. Praise God that you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, that you bear the same suffering and shame that he did. It's good, it's okay as a believer to suffer for your faith to be ostracized for your faith, to be defriended and unfollowed for your faith because you stand for the truth and the world doesn't like it. It attacks it. Peter says your response should be praise. Not attack and get him back, but praise to God. Praise to God that you bear that name. Praise to God meaning that you have a relationship with the one who saves to the utmost most. You are one of His. You are a child of God. In Scripture, uh, Christian, or more generically, God's people, are referred to by 175 different names. 175 different names, titles, and figures of speech referred to Christians as individuals or as groups in the Old Testament and New Testament. And no, we're not going to go through all 175. It's a fascinating study. It's amazing. It's mind-boggling because those names and titles and figures of speech that God gives to his people 
Each one of them has, it opens up a new window into the understanding of how valuable you are to God, how special in His eyes you are to our Heavenly Father. It's, it's amazing. And some of those, just some of them, just a smattering of it, and I think all of these you have heard before, one is disciple. Disciple, an individual who mimics the leader. Who is our leader? Jesus Christ. And so those who mimic Jesus Christ, both his attitude and his ways, his practices, is considered a disciple, a learner, someone who is mimicking a master. Also called brother and sister. Multiple times, and we saw that, I think it was 13 times alone in 1 Thessalonians a couple months ago. Brother and sister. That family relationship, that blood is thicker than water type of relationship that we have with one another and with Jesus Christ. We're called a saint. A saint. Multiple times we're called a saint in the New Testament. Not that we need a statue erected of us or not that you should be wearing a medal of my face around your neck for protection or good luck. That's not scriptural understanding of what a saint is. A saint is not someone who dies and prays for you or offers you some sort of special thing if you light a candle in their name to you. No, no, no. A saint is one who is simply holy. And God considers you, as a Christian, holy, with no sin, robed in the righteousness of Christ Himself, that you are set apart, and He calls you a saint. Everyone. There's no miracles you have to perform in order to be classified a saint in God's mind. If you are a believer, you are a saint. He also calls us, well, this is pretty simple, a believer in Jesus. Can't get any easier than that. We're also called followers of the way. Interesting time. It only occurs once in Scripture, in Acts. Uh, but the way was how Christ lived. If you're living how Christ lived, you are a follower of the way. And how did Christ tell us to live? I'll give you a hint. I'm not asking for you to raise your hand, but just think. I'll give you a hint. There are two parts to the answer. Does that help? All right. And both start with the word love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you say, oh, Tim, that's Old Testament stuff, I say, yes, Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament and make it brighter and bigger in our eyes in the new. And so those are even bigger and brighter commandments that we are to live by. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, we're fulfilling the whole of law. And if we walk in that, and people recognize it and notice it, they say, oh, you're walking in the way the way of love, loving God and loving others. You're walking in the way. Uh, we're often called friend. Friend, not just friends to each other in that generic sense of, hey, you're a friend, I know your name, and I recognize you from somewhere, but we're talking about a friend that has an established relationship of care and concern, and God even applies that term friend.